welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back. I have a special show for you today. We are going to be talking about what happens when the surgeon becomes the patient. Now, many of you out there know somebody whose life was touched by cancer. And for me personally, I've had four friends in the last two years who've been diagnosed with breast cancer. And one of those friends is today's guest. Her name is Dr. Sandra Frywald, also known as Sandy to her friends. And she's here to talk about her journey with breast cancer through the lens of surgeon, patient, mother, and wife. And in fact, her husband also had his own battle with cancer a few years prior to her diagnosis. So Sandy has lived through the impacts of cancer from many different perspectives. What I most appreciate about her is that she's always fully present and committed to living full on. During our conversation, you'll be learning more about Sandy's professional bio. But I just wanted to just take a second to say to you that every woman's story, your story, is really such a gift It's a celebration of our experiences. And I think that through a podcast, when we are connecting together, whether you're walking at the gym, driving your car, running an errand, however we're connecting right now, there's an intimacy that happens through any podcast that you listen to. But as you know, or if you're new to the show, I do love to share stories of women, usually they're entrepreneurial women, but the truth is that every woman's story matters and your story matters. So my hope is that by sharing Sandy's journey and her ability to share both her strengths as well as her vulnerability will provide you an opportunity while we're talking to think about where you've been vulnerable and how you found strength during hard times. And to also think about where you want to be taking your life in the future. Because we all have an opportunity to follow what's in our heart to do and to also be in service of others. So on that note, I look forward to introducing you to Dr. Sandra Frywald. Hi, Sandy. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Michelle. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm really looking forward to having the audience learn more about you. Now, I will say that we are friends. You are somebody that I deeply admire. And every time I spend time with, I feel like a better person. And I mean that from my heart. You are really uh, such a strong and interesting person and always just so self-effacing, though, so that I think a lot of people may not realize the depth of not of your story. And so that's what I'd like to talk about today. Um, And then also as it relates to being a surgeon who then also became the patient. So I'd love to kick it off. 
with you sharing how you got into this field of medicine. Um, was it something that you were intrigued by at a young age? And, you know, just really just take us into your story a bit more. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Detroit. Um, I was an only child. My mom was a nurse and my dad was a firefighter. So from a young age, I was exposed to helping professions. Um, I heard a lot around the dinner table about um, things that sounded exciting and interesting to me from both of my parents, um, both of my dad working and putting out fires and, you know, treating people who were affected with burns and being involved in fires and also from my mom who worked in an operating room and then later worked in a doctor's office and had a lot of interesting stories to tell me. Now, when I was a kid, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian and I specifically wanted to be a zoo veterinarian and take care of exotic animals. Oh, I love that. Um, but um, it turned out that I have pretty bad animal allergies <laughs> and I think that, um, I kind of transitioned from thinking about about um, zoo veterinary medicine to taking care of people, kind of influenced by my, my animal allergies. So I ended up um, applying to and being accepted um, during high school into a, a program that was an uh, integrated program that combined um, pre-medical school and medical school um, kind of directly right out of high school. So I made the decision to go to medical school, I think when I was 15 or 16 years old, um, which in retrospect, it was kind of a naive, um, uninformed choice, uh, but I still think it turned out to be a great choice for me, and I'm happy that I had the opportunity to do it. I went into medical school um, not really understanding what I would end up doing, but uh, when we started learning about things like trauma and injury and tumors and infections and things that are traditionally um, surgical problems, I was really interested and intrigued. And when we were learning about things uh, like medical problems like high blood pressure and diabetes, I, I kind of felt like I was zoning out a little bit. So um, it didn't take me long to figure out where my interests uh, were going to lead me. Um, and so in my third year of medical school, when we started doing clinical rotations, I was really drawn to the surgical specialties, and I knew that that's how I wanted to um, end up in the operating room. And I know that you do love your work. Sandy, would you say that you're somebody who just has always had a strong inner knowing? You just strike me as somebody who is quietly confident and just knows herself really well. So it seems like your path, you know, as you followed it, you just kind of had a sense this is where the next step was. Would you say that's true? I do think that's true. Um, I I usually am pretty, um, I arrive at decisions pretty quickly and uh, don't do a lot of second guessing of my choices. Um, so I do think that I've been lucky and that I, I know myself pretty well. And it's usually pretty easy for me to know what it is I want to do and how I need to get there. Yeah, and you're definitely somebody who, when you're clear, you make things happen. So um, I know one part of your story is that you're also a humanitarian. In 2016, you were awarded the prestigious American College of Surgeons Pfizer Award for domestic volunteerism. So 
um, I know just from understanding what I've read that that meant that you helped recruit surgeons and also performed surgeries for people who were uninsured and couldn't otherwise afford it. And um, I also know that you were involved with Doctors Without Borders and went to Liberia a couple times. Can you tell us what motivated you to want to help people who otherwise wouldn't be getting this help? Sure. Um, I first learned about Doctors Without Borders when I was um, finishing my surgical residency. I was getting ready to do um, a fellowship, which is further training in trauma surgery and intensive care unit medicine um, when I finished my surgery residency. And um, so I went to a conference about trauma surgery, and one of the speakers at that conference was a doctor who um, practiced emergency medicine and had been involved in working with Doctors Without borders in Afghanistan. So he put on this amazing presentation of um, traveling in the mountains on donkey and taking care of patients in tents under very austere conditions, and that really captured my imagination. Um, I love to travel. I love to be exposed to other cultures, but I also feel very strongly that anyone who needs to have access to healthcare should be able to get it. And so those two things were really combined uh, in my mind in the mission of Doctors Without Borders. So it took a while for me to reach a point in my career where I was actually able to take off the time I needed to work with Doctors Without Borders. Um, but I was able to go in 2005 and 2006 and spend um, several months on each occasion uh, working in Liberia. I would have to say that that was a pretty life-altering experience um, in just opening my eyes up to the global need for availability of surgery and um, kind of instilling in me the realization of how people all over the world just want the same things. They want to be healthy, they want their families to be healthy, um, and they want to be able to get better when they have a problem, a medical problem. Um, when I came back from that, I uh, was offered a position as a surgical lead um, uh, uh, with a project uh, at my work, which we called Surgery Saturdays. Um, we were partnering with the San Diego County Medical Society Foundation um, to work with community clinics to help patients who didn't have access to elective surgical care um, to be able to get operated on. So basically people in the community who don't have health insurance often go to community clinics and when they're diagnosed with problems that aren't emergencies, um, things like hernias or gallbladder disease or um, benign tumors, things of that nature, it's really hard for them to find a surgeon who can and will take care of them. So um, I was able to help coordinate a program where we worked with the community clinics to help provide a day, uh, a Saturday, of um, elective access to the operating room where we could operate on a whole bunch of these people at the same time to get their problems taken care of. Um, we also worked with the uh, GI or the gastroenterology doctors to provide um, colonoscopy screenings for people who needed to be screened for colorectal cancer. So... Um, I certainly wasn't the main driver of that whole program, um, but I was able to help mostly coordinate the surgical aspects of it. And over the years, we took care of hundreds of patients um, who wouldn't otherwise have had access to the surgical care. 
Um, so uh, one of my partners nominated me for the award from the American College of Surgeons, which was a, certainly a great honor, but it really um, was sort of an award for everyone who was doing this volunteer work. I, I was just lucky enough to be in the position to kind of help coordinate it and make help make it happen. Sandy, you're so humble. I know that that's true, but I also know that <laughs> you give so much. And this is one of the things that is so endearing about you. Um, you do so much. And we'll get into even just how you manage your own your own diagnosis with breast cancer in a moment, because I think this strength that you have and this just taking things day by day and the pragmatic way that you look at things and um, is is going to be more telling when we get into that. But um, I'm wondering, Sandy, um, so comparatively, so take us into Liberia, though, just because now I'm curious. So where were you operating? In San Diego, it was in an operating room. What was that like in Liberia? Well, um, Doctors Without Borders uh, had a hospital in Liberia, which was the only place of it where we were in Monrovia, which was the capital of the country. And it was the only hospital in the capital where people could come and get free surgical care. So there, um, there was an emergency room, there were two operating rooms, um, and then there were wards for inpatient care for both children and adults. Um, it was staffed. Uh, primarily by local people. Um, there were emergency room doctors and physicians assistants and nurse anesthetists from Liberia who had recently lived through the country's civil war and had tremendous amounts of knowledge and experience that they shared with me and taught me uh, just a, an amazing amount of uh, medical knowledge and, and cultural and social knowledge as mm. well. Um, so we basically we're taking care of a population of people who had spent the last 10 or 15 years really without access to reliable health care. Mm. Um, there were a lot of young people who uh, really didn't even um, understand or have part of their, um, let's see, I'm, I'm kind of getting, I'm not putting my thoughts together quite straight here, but um, the society as a whole didn't have the expectation of having access to medical care. And so when patients had a medical problem or a surgical problem, um, it wasn't the most natural thing for them to think, oh, I'll just go to the hospital and get it taken care of. Um, so it was sort of a, um, a cultural shift that was happening while over the years since the Civil War ended, in which people were realizing again that there was medical care and surgical care available and that they didn't have to be privileged or have money in order to be able to obtain that care. So we were providing um, what I would consider you know, very up-to-date modern care just in a setting that had fewer resources than I was used to working with in San Diego. So instead of going to the emergency room and going to the CAT scan and getting a bunch of blood tests drawn and then the surgeon being called, it would be more of a process of coming to the emergency room. The ER doctor would see the patient and then call me and I would sort of have to figure out what was going on based on sort of old-fashioned examining the patient and maybe being able to get an x-ray or um, a simple blood test. So it was a, definitely a different way of practicing medicine, but it was kind of a return to the roots of medicine, of mm. talking to the patient, examining them, and figuring out what to do. And to be honest, most 
diseases or disease processes were so much more advanced there that it usually wasn't too hard to figure out who needed surgery and what they needed to have done. Wow. Um, That's incredible and so fascinating. And also it just makes me think of how we're very fortunate in the United States with the level of medical care we have, not that they didn't have good quality care there, but like you said, even the people didn't even know that you could just, you should just go and seek it out. Whereas here we just, it's take, you know, you just, the emergency room's just always there. And if you have an emergency room, you go, um, or you just go see your doctor if you're not well. Now, Sandy, what kind of surgery do you practice? So this is my own ignorance. I, I did have an experience with a surgeon when I, my daughter needed an inguinal, she had two inguinal hernias. Mm-hmm. I think I'm saying that correctly, um, mm-hmm. which I was the one to, to detect. I didn't know what I was seeing. I just knew that something wasn't right. And so I just remember going to the children's hospital in Boston and you just see whoever really, I, I got a recommendation. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, they say, book the surgery and you're <laughs> off, you know? So as as the parent or somebody who's not familiar with the technical part and what you do day to day. I mean, this is just what you do. You do surgeries. Um, Can you just explain, do you have a specialty or how does it generally work with surgeons? Well, I'm I'm a general surgeon. So that means I did five years of training after medical school in general surgery. And that encompasses a lot of different areas. Um, We fix hernias, we take out appendixes, we um, remove gallbladders. We operate on patients with colon cancer and breast cancer and skin cancers. Um, so it kind of depends on where you practice, how specialized your your own practice becomes. Um, after I finished my surgery, general surgery residency, I did an additional year of training in trauma surgery and intensive care unit medicine. Um, but I ended up not having that be part of my daily practice. And the reason for that was that trauma surgery has kind of evolved into a lot of non-operative management of injuries. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't feel like I was doing what I enjoyed as much as I wanted to, which is being in the operating room and operating on people. So um, in my practice now, I take care of um, kind of what we call bread and butter general surgery, like the things I talked about, hernias, gallbladders, um, breast cancer. Um, I also do some surgery of the thyroid and parathyroid glands, which um, involves um, kind of a little bit different anatomy in the neck. Um, So the way that patients um, end up in my office is they're seen by primary care and found to have a surgical problem, and then they sort of get booked with the next available surgeon who has an opening that fits with their schedule, um, who takes care of the problem that they have. Um, So it's a little bit random. Um, but that's overall how things work in San Diego when patients need to be referred to a surgeon. Yeah, and this is actually a good transition in a way because it can be so scary. And in January of 2017, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. And so um, I'd be, it'd be great if you would, wouldn't mind just sharing, you know, first of all, how was it detected and then how as a surgeon, it impacted the decisions you made because most of us go into situations, like I said, with my daughter, you don't even know what questions to ask, really. You yeah. just, you know, you, you, but you want answers, but you also have to have faith. So I'm just curious how somebody with so much knowledge, if it was 
a good thing or a bad thing, you know, and, you know, in your case, like how did it either benefit you or um, maybe make things a little more stressful? Well, it's, it was definitely a unique experience. <laughs> um, I, I did not have any family history of breast cancer or really any risk factors for getting breast cancer. Um, I was 47 when I was diagnosed, and I had went in for my yearly screening mammogram, which I had been getting on a regular basis just as part of my routine health maintenance. Um, I wasn't aware of any problems with my breasts. I didn't feel any lumps. And I um, remember I was in the operating room and I just happened to open my own chart to see if my mammogram results were back yet. And I read my mammogram report saying that there were concerning changes and that the mammography department was going to contact me for Mm. um, further testing. So I went from closing my own chart to going to operate on the patient that I was in the operating room getting ready to take care of. So that was... um, a little bit weird, and I hope that doesn't sound too scary to people who are listening, um, because as surgeons, we definitely have um, learned the skill of compartmentalizing things, where when we're in the operating room operating on someone, that's what we're thinking about. Um, so I, you know, I was just able to put that in the back of my mind and do my job and then deal with the fallout afterwards. So I called the radiologist who read the mammogram. And I think one of the things that I noticed about all of this is that it, it, it can be hard for your colleagues and friends to take care of you. Mm. Like they don't want to tell you bad things and give you bad news. And um, I think they, the tendency is to want to protect you from, whatever's going on. So she she was like, well, I just, I don't know, it just looked a little bit funny. It was a little bit different. So let's just get you in and get it checked out. And I'm sure it will be nothing. And um, so um, a day or two later, I was in the um, radiology department having uh, more mammography done and ultrasounds done. Uh, and it turned out that I had um, a whole bunch of tumors in my right breast. And they were able to see three at the time of the ultrasound. And um, one of my friends and colleagues was the radiologist who was doing the ultrasound, and she immediately did biopsies. Um, she was very frank with me and said, this definitely looks like cancer, and you know, we're going to biopsy them and get a diagnosis. So um, a few days later, uh, the pathologist called me and told me that I had invasive lobular breast cancer, which is one of the two most common kinds of, of breast cancer. Um and uh, and then I need to figure out what to do next. So um, lobular breast cancer is a, is a little bit less common than ductal cancer, which is the um, the kind that forms lumps that people can potentially typically feel in the breast. Lobular cancer is a little bit more kind of spider-like or extends in like fingers through the breast tissue on a microscopic level. So I think that helped me understand why I wasn't able to feel my own tumors, Mm. why I didn't know, like, I just kind of felt weird that I hadn't figured it out myself prior to the mammogram. Um, But once I knew my diagnosis, I I called another of my friend and colleagues and I asked her if she would take care of me. So we... um, my husband and I went to the consultation with her, and when I saw her, I already knew what I wanted to do from a surgery standpoint. Um, 
over the years of taking care of patients with breast cancer, I'd had a lot of patients ask me, well, if this was you, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And I had, um, I think probably through my whole career, I told them, you know, that it's a really personal decision, but if if I were faced with the choice, I would probably have a mastectomy and I would probably choose not to have reconstruction. And so then when it turns out that I... Um, mm-hmm did have to make the choice. Um, that's still what I felt like I wanted to do. Wow. And why did you choose not to do reconstruction or why would, why was that something that you said that you would recommend not doing? Just, I'm just curious. Well, I mean, um, again, it's a really personal choice. Um, but I, there, there, it's kind of multifaceted. Um, I guess I felt like I had seen, um, enough complications from breast reconstruction, both done immediately at the time of mastectomy and in a a delayed fashion, that I wasn't really interested in subjecting myself to the potential for complications with scarring or infection. Um, If you have immediate reconstruction and you are someone who ends up needing chemotherapy, which I did end up needing, um, if you have an infection complicating your reconstruction that can delay your treatment with chemotherapy. Mm. And I felt like my main priority was doing everything I could to potentially prolong my uh, um, survival. And I was less concerned about um, um, like my physical appearance. Sure. The other thing is just um, like, I think women who have had breast reconstructive surgery uh, when they're wearing clothes, looks natural and normal, but um, I just personally didn't feel like the uh, cosmetic outcome when you're naked uh, really was something that was valuable enough to me that I would take the risks that I would need to take to get to that point. That makes sense. Um, And I can see why you say it's so personal. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, I think it depends on how you see yourself and how, you know, obviously like how you see yourself self as a sexual person comes into playing and it's all, I mean, it's really complicated. Um, but I just didn't want to put myself under more risk and potentially, um, interfere with my ability to surf and swim and it just didn't seem worth it to me. Um, and I also, a little bit of this is just like, why do I have to conform to society's feelings about what a woman should look like? Mm. Like, well, why do I have to go through these risks to make other people feel comfortable in my presence when I feel okay about how I am without breasts? So. You're so awesome, Sandy. <laughs> this is why I love you. Um, so, yes, and thank you for saying that. Absolutely. And so this is right. If it's personal, if it makes a woman feel whole in herself, Absolutely. If it doesn't matter, exactly. then you don't have to please society's view of how a woman should appear. So that's yeah. beautiful. I love what you just said. So how has this experience changed how you practice now and interact with your patients? So, you know, somebody might come in for, like you said, an appendectomy or something else, but what if it's a breast cancer patient? You know, I'm just curious if it's sort of changed how you are now practicing day to day. Um, well, it, it can be a little bit um, more emotionally trying for me 
but I think that it's probably more helpful for my patients to have someone taking care of them who knows what it feels like. Yes. Um, I. I don't mean to be ageist, but I do feel like when I'm taking care of older women who have breast cancer, I don't quite feel the same um, kind of psychological um, intensity that I feel now when I'm taking care of young women with breast cancer. And I especially feel kind of personally moved by um, women who are mothers of young kids who are going through this um, because like I know how it feels to be worried about all the implications of having breast cancer when you're a mom. Mm. And so that I, that um, kind of emotionally is something that I struggle with kind of empathizing with the patient, but not over empathizing in a weird way. Yeah. Um, so um, that part can be internally challenging for me, um, but I do think that being able to say to a patient, look, I, I know what this feels like. I know that it's horrible, and um, but I also know that I got through this, and I know that you can get through it too. Um, I think it's really beneficial to be able to share that kind of um, level of understanding with the patients. Absolutely. Because, and I, and I like what you said about having the empathy, but still with a boundary, because I think that must be a delicate dance, a delicate balance that you have to do. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, when I was in the office with my daughter's surgeon for 10 minutes, he seemed like a great guy. He was highly recommended. um, But it was and I'm, I'm not going to make an assumption, but in, in essence, it was just another surgery for him, right? It's it's a it's just what he does. Um, yeah. But as the person, like if he could have said, oh, yeah, my child had this or I don't know. I, I agree that maybe the piece of being able to empathize would, as the patient, make you feel like she understands. Like you understand all of it, the fear, the what's going to happen and, and all of that. So I I it makes so much sense to me. Um, but your husband also had had cancer a few years prior. So you were, you've also been on the side as the partner. Do you mind speaking to that, Sandy? Oh, no, not at all. Um, um, about seven years ago now, my husband was diagnosed with um, cancer of the appendix. And um, he'd been having some kind of weird abdominal pain and ended up having a CAT scan and, and was diagnosed this um, kind of rare tumor. Um, that led to him needing a couple operations, um, and then as part of his operation, he had to have chemotherapy put into his abdomen during surgery to try to kill any um, remaining cancer cells. So um, that was a really big operation. It was a lot more physically um, challenging for him to recover from that operation than it was for me to recover from the surgeries that I had. Um, he has not needed any further treatment after that, which was a relief that he didn't have to go through chemotherapy. Um, But I think that, um, uh, and so he's doing fine so far, which is, of course, is a big relief. Um, But it has two aspects to it in terms of our relationship and our our, our, um, parenting. Um, One is that I think we both understand very well how it feels to be... um, again, worried about the implications of being a parent of a young kid and having a cancer diagnosis. But also, um, it's been really um, uh, meaningful and helpful to me that he understands 
really on a very concrete level what I have been going through. And he's been a really great resource for me in terms of um, just support and understanding on a really, really concrete level of what this is really like. Uh, I guess it makes me wonder too, Sandy, then. So knowing what you do, what advice would you give to someone diagnosed with cancer? Because I've had so many friends in the last year and a half, you being one of them. And when you love somebody and you care about somebody and you you don't always know what to do or say. So um, that's on this end of it. But what advice would you give to the person who's actually diagnosed in terms of how to support themselves as best they can? Well, I think, I think there are multiple facets of how best to deal with it. I think that um, one of the first things that is important to do is to um, recognize that you have to give up some control and that there are things that are going to happen to you that you uh, don't have the ability to change. And uh, that that was hard for me, um, but it was also freeing in a way because I just had to kind of um, let go and let um, advocate for myself, but yet accept that I wasn't going to be able to control everything that happened. Um, I think it's really important to um, let people help you and accept the help that people want to get you, uh, to give you. And that can be a little bit difficult um, at times as well, but I I can't say a much of enough about how meaningful it was to have um, friends step up to help with all varieties of things from childcare to cooking and meal preparation or just making me know that they were available if I wanted to talk about things. Um, I think another important thing is to just kind of recognize that just because you feel awful at one particular moment, whether it's when you're recovering from surgery or going through chemotherapy or even just psychologically feeling beaten down by what you're going through, um, it doesn't mean that the next day is going to feel that same way. And so I think that recognizing that this is there's a lot of ups and downs associated with treatment and that you just kind of have to go with the flow. And if you're in a really low point, recognize that that's not how you're going to feel forever. And I think that that was really helpful to me to be able to recognize that, um, you know, things change and that I, just to be hopeful that things would be better when I was going through rough patches. Um, thank you for sharing that. I know that running's been a big part of your life, Sandy, and you've been a triathlete. And also, more recently, I think, a marathon runner um, in the mm-hmm. last few years. Um, can you talk about how running has been a strength for you and how it fuels you? Um, sure. I So <laughs> part of the irony in all of this, when I was going through the period of, like, how could this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? Is that um, endurance exercise is supposed to be uh, something that helps people not get cancer. So I was, I I have to admit to having been kind of like angry that Mm. like, oh my gosh, like how, you know, seriously, how could this be happening to me? Um, But I did recognize that um, keeping, being able to keep moving through all of my treatment made me both feel better physically, kind of keep up my energy level and also um, 
possibly help prevent reoccurrence. Um, there, there is data that staying active and um, engaging in physical activity may help decreased chances of cancer reoccurring and uh, as maintaining a healthy weight is also an important part of that. So um, I think that I used exercise as a tool to help manage my physical symptoms. The more I moved, the better I felt. It helped me emotionally. It gave me something that I did feel like I had under my control and that I could do to try to improve my situation. Um, but I also drew on my experience with um, like long distance racing prior to my cancer surgery uh, and treatment to know that, again, like in a race, you might reach a point where you feel really, really awful and want to quit. But if you can just kind of push through that mile or that couple of blocks that you might not feel badly the next mile. And so I think I drew on that many times when I was having rough patches with my treatment that I knew I just had to push through it and eventually I would start feeling better. I would get to the end of of the race or the treatment or whatever. So um, so that helped um, sustain and inspire me to get through my treatment. So I'm curious, I know that um, not on the year anniversary, but a couple months after your diagnosis, so a year and two months after your diagnosis, you chose to run the marathon in Japan. And I'm just curious, at what point did you know that you you were going to do that? Um, I think I might have still been going through my chemo. Um, And I was just like, look, I, I always do best if I have some sort of something that I'm planning for or looking forward to or training for. And so I started looking for marathons that were a year out and I, I wanted to have it be something like really special and, and maybe something of a celebration that I could do with my family as well. Um, so I ended up choosing the Tokyo marathon and, um, made a a family trip out of it. None of us had been to Japan before. So um, actually one of my girlfriends also um, chose to train for and run the race. So we were there together. That's beautiful. Um, Yeah. And uh, it it was almost a year to the date to my first chemotherapy infusion. So um, it wasn't a race that I ran with any um, hope of being fast or doing a good job, but it was probably... um, one of the most joyous races that I ran because um, the whole time I was just so thankful that I was back at a place where I could do this. Um, at the start of the race, when I was waiting in the corral um, to for the starting gun to go off for my group, and there was a sign in a window of a building that said, Run with Joy. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, I'm going to start to cry now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but so, um, I, that made me cry before the race. Um, but it also was like crying tears of joy, um, as opposed to, yeah. (laughs) So beautiful. And Sandy, you were going to run. So is this going to be an annual thing? I ask because I know this April you were in France, you were in Paris to run, but can you tell everyone what happens before, (laughs) before the race? Yeah. So, um, so part of, um, my, coming out on the other side of this treatment is just sort of embracing um, life and wanting to 
do as much as I can and live in the moment and especially do that with my daughter. So um, my daughter uh, decided to take up snowboarding this year and she wanted me to do that with her. So um, we made a few trips and have been taking lessons together. And it just so happened that about a month before the Paris Marathon, um, I was snowboarding with her and fell and broke my wrist. So um, <laughs> I was pretty sure I could still run with a broken wrist. And I was intending to do that, but um, my surgeon told me that if I fell again during the race and landed on my arm, I would just never be able to get my arm right again. Um, so he convinced me um, to not race this year. So we went to Paris anyway, and um, I missed the marathon, but I'm signed up for next year. So Of course you are. Of course you are. <laughs> um, Sandy, you're so wonderful. Before um, we wrap up, can you leave the women listening with your three best pieces of advice for living a good life? Well, I think uh, my first piece would be to get your health screenings. Um, if you're due for mammogram or colonoscopy, do them um, because the earlier you can have a cancer diagnosis made, the better your chances of having a good outcome are. Um, I think the second thing I would recommend is that we should all just take some time to recognize that um, we shouldn't take our good health for granted and that we're all just like a phone call away from a, a life-changing diagnosis. And in light of that fact, I think it's important to um, try to live every day in the present and to savor every moment that we have when we're healthy and able to do the things we love to do. And um, lastly, I think kind of going back a little bit to, to talking about my work and volunteerism and things of that nature. Um, I, I try to live my life by um, kind of thinking about being the change that I want to see in the world. And so I think this has kind of reinforced for me even more that access to healthcare is just so crucial. I'm so lucky that I have been able to have access to wonderful healthcare and I've uh, at least in my own life, I feel like it's really important for me to fight for that for other people who aren't as fortunate as I am. It's beautifully said. Thank you for sharing everything today. It's been, as always, any time I spend with you, it's been grounding and inspiring and heartwarming. So thank you so much, Sandy, for your time. Oh, thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you a sense of hope and strength within yourself because you are strong and your desires and your journey matters. So come on over to thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash zero two nine for today's episode. Let me know what resonated with you. And while you're there, feel free to join our community of women and sign up for the newsletter. When you do, you'll be given a list of 52 self-care tips that will come into your inbox immediately. So thank you again for joining me today and we'll reconnect next Wednesday. Bye for now. Bye for now.